Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. You know, uh, it doesn't take much effort to be reminded that you're in a broken world. Um, <laughs> I was watching the news and I, if I have this correct, it's just terrifying that since the beginning through September of 2022, I think in Shelby County alone, there have been 30 accidental shootings, 30, by the ninth month. I was trying to get inundated in all my soccer. It's the most patriotic I ever get. And I'm all USA'd out, and I can't watch enjoy my soccer without being reminded of foreign conflict and intercontinental conflict and things going on. I was praying with one of our members this week about one of their family members literally threatening the lives of other family members. It's just like, man, you can't go very far or you can't go very long without being reminded that we are in a broken world. And in order to navigate this broken world, we have to do it with hope. It's impossible to be able to navigate all the darkness without hope. And I think I just want to remind you today that your heavenly father is aware of that. He knows that. He's not just sending you out into this world knowing how difficult it is and saying, man, I hope it works well for you. I hope you can make it. I hope you keep trusting in me. He knows you need hope to keep moving forward. And because we, as his people, because we're human beings, we're prone to despair in this broken world. The Lord has provided us a means of hope through the narrative, through the promises, and the commands of Scripture. That's what I want to tell you today. Because the Lord knows you're prone to despair. You know that beautiful song, we love, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I He knows it. He knows it even when we forget that we're prone to wander. Amen, somebody. He knows that this world will crush us. And so he knows that he needs to get his people hope. I hope that's good news to somebody out there. And he's going to give you that hope. One of the primary ways he does it is through the narrative, through the promises, and the commands of Scripture. I love this quote by John Maxwell. Hope is so key. It's so essential. John Maxwell says that hope dares to give when no one else is sharing Hope dares to give when no one else is sharing. Some other maxim just says this, that it's been said that a person can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but only four seconds without hope. If you don't have a reason, and if you don't have hope, it's hard to go forward. And so, we'll zoom into this scripture again, and we'll just remind ourselves of the means by which the Lord is trying to infuse his people with hope, all right? Now, Romans 15, we know it as um, many of us, uh, especially, you know, you read the Bible, you done with all your Sunday school, you done with VBS, and you ready to get serious about your theology, you ready to get serious about your scripture, you know, you skip past the gospels, because you you'd heard about all the miracles, and you skip past all the narrative, you want to... I want to learn some doctrine. I want to learn them big 10-letter words that they only say in seminary. 
You usually open your Bible to Romans, right? Some people refer to it as the constitution of our faith. But it's written in a very familiar epistolary style, right? It starts off, right? These letters that are written by God's spoken of vessels. We call them the apostles, right? After um, he appeared. Um, These letters, they're written with a very similar kind of format. They start off with orthodoxy, right? They're trying to unpack for you what it is that happened, right? Who is Jesus and what that means and how, how uh, um, we should be rewired and think about him rightly and accurately. But once it gets done with all of the right thinking and the right belief and the right doctrine, it moves to how we should live in response to that. Right? It always moves from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. And once we get to the 15th chapter of Romans, we've done that. We've passed over the big theology. And now we are talking about, really, I'll, I'll get to it a little later, the cruciform life. How do we shape our lives in response to what has been done for us and through us? And so that's where we're at. If you know a little bit about Paul, you know about the first century church, then um, the issues that Paul is addressing here in the 15th chapter, they won't be too unfamiliar to you, right? What Romans 14 and 15 is doing, Paul is calling those believers, right, um, to respond to one another with grace and sacrificial love, right? Mutual acceptance between those who have stronger consciousness and weaker consciousness. We believe that really this is just another glimpse into the early churches. Um, They had the issues over food, right? Remember food sacrificed to idols. Should we eat it? You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, me and Gina, we, sanctification. Gina was in the refrigerator yesterday. She's like, Tim, I'm gonna throw out these green beans. I'm like, ooh, no, you're not gonna throw out my green beans. You don't even eat the green beans. And it's literally, I smell all my food to see if I'm going to throw it out. I don't care about six days, seven days. I got to smell it. I'm going to smell it first. All right, we can still do something with that. Come on, man. Who, where my smell people at? You know what I'm saying? I got to smell it first. Gina be like, <laughs> come on, man. Let me eat my food. She's like, I'm going to throw this out. I'm gonna th- I love leftovers. I don't know about y'all. I ain't never going to be hungry. PT got food from everywhere coming. Ooh, 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 yeah. I'm going to put a little bit of that together. Ooh, little, little bean and weenies right there. Okay, little hammer, little taco. You, hey, you're not really living until you got the tacos with spaghetti. That has a nice little taste to it. That nice little citrus. Come on, man. Come on. But there is, there is a dispute, literally. Like, they're like, hey, man. You know, hey, that food may have come from this place, and I'm not going to touch it. Well, other believers, why are y'all eating it? And, and these other believers, their, their consciences weren't pricked. These people's were. And so they were trying to figure out how do, we, how do we forbear with one another when we have differences of opinion on these non-essential matters. There is no mandate for exactly when we should eat the food or not eat the food. But the overarching principle is that we have to mutually edify and build each other up. And we have to, both of us, lean into what is going to be best for your joy and progress in the faith. And so we see in 1 Corinthians 8, someone was like, hey, man, I don't have a problem eating the meat. But if it's going to help you, I won't touch it. You want to know how you can tell if you've grown in your spiritual walk? What do you do with your freedoms? 
You want to know if you've really grown in Christ-likeness? Think about what do you do with your freedoms, the things you have a legitimate right to do. Hey, but for the sake of your brother and sister. Come on, man, now you moving. Now you starting to look like our Lord, the one who uh, uh, veiled in flesh, condescends and comes down exercise uh, the right, voluntarily lay down his freedom so that we could become rich in him. So Paul is walking through all of this in Romans 15. And I want to read for you again, not the whole 13 verses, but I want to concentrate on the first four verses. So Lex, can we put those first four back on the screen, the ones that were in my notes? I want to read and set it again. So you can get the vibe. It just says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Everybody say, please ourselves. Each, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Everybody say, build them up. For even as Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement, they provide, we might have hope. Everybody say have hope. And so we see Paul working that principle. Are you doing what is best for your brother and sister? Right? Including even maybe sometimes laying down your freedoms for their benefit. And he quotes uh, this psalm from Psalm 69, right, those things about the insults, it says the insults of those who have, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me in regards to Jesus being the supreme example of the one who lays down his freedoms so that others may benefit. And I want to pause before we get to hope, just so you understand, the Bible and Christian living is serious. It takes very seriously the building up of the saints. It takes that very seriously. Let's go to Philippians 2.4. Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Romans 14 and 19, just a few verses ahead of where we're at. So then let us pursue what leads to peace and to mutual affections. Ephesians 4 and 11. And it was he who gave, referring to Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, as we mature to the full measure of the stature of Christ. God wants us to be built up. He will not leave us how he found us. And we are instrumental in the building up of one another. One of the primary things that I try to stress when we do premarital counseling is that just because y'all are now engaged, listen, man, I done sat across from a bunch of couples now in this church, and it's some, I know it's some mothers in here who love each other. The Strohshines, they had their own special dap. We be eating pancakes, and they be like, I love you. I love you too. And they be like, <laughs> the mother look like LeBron and Kyrie out there. They be like, I like so. Don't worry about it. Me and my wife, we going to get us a dap next year. <laughs> Let me tell y'all, we got some mugs love each other. Catherine and Jordan Purdom, I almost could not do their wedding. 
them mugs were sitting there. I'd be like, turn and let's do the vows. And they're just looking at each other. I love you, baby. I said, I said look at me. <laughs> it was intense. That thing was intense. But one of the things that I like to stress as you get married is you cannot forget that before you became husband and wife, you were brother and sister in Christ. And one of the primary ways that God is going to get his encouragement and grace to his beloved is through you. Do you take that seriously? That God has ordained you to be in their life, to keep them encouraged in him. You also always need to be washing your spouse with the water of the word. Always need to be infusing them. You always get some post-it notes and write the scripture on the mirror before they put it on. And don't just tell your wife that she's beautiful, though she is. Tell her that she's the apple of his eye. Don't just tell your husband that he's worth something because he makes the money and he works hard. No, you tell him that he's God's beloved son and he's already pleased with him. Building up, building up. God's people have to constantly be built up. And can I tell you while I'm on marriage, one of the hardest things to do in a marriage is encourage your spouse. It is just hard. Because you know the truth. You know the truth about you. You don't want to, I ain't going to speak no life in them because they didn't do what I wanted them to do. Can I just say? First Peter even says, bro, you need to check yourself and your heart towards your wife because if that ain't checked, I'm not even hearing your prayers. And what the words say? It's hard to encourage one another. You know why? It's because we're so concentrated on self. And the cruciform life is always other-focused. This is why it's so difficult to do Christianity in this me-centered self-care world. Because it's, it's messing with us. It's like... Hold on, everybody's telling me that 2023 needs to be about me. 2023, girl, it's just going, I'm just going to get me together. <laughs> and then your Jesus is saying, no, your 2023 and your 2030 forever need to be about me. Yeah. And when you let me live in you, I'll get you together and your neighbor too. See, that don't preach real well, do it. But it's, it's what we believe, though, yo. It's what we believe. It's the Matthew 6, that as we put him first, all the things that we need will be added to us. And we will be able to keep extending ourselves because we know we are being taken care of. This is the cross-shaped life, y'all. Other focus. Others' interests, their joy in Jesus, their progress in Jesus above our own. But here's where we want to really focus. Verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. 
So Paul's saying, hey, what, what, I love this. Paul is addressing a very specific matter about dietary laws and restrictions now that they are in Christ. But he addresses it by using very general, broad, timeless principles, right? He's saying, hey, man, the life in Christ is about offering yourself and, and putting your neighbor's interests above your own. He says, look at our Lord Jesus. That's what he does, right? And guess what? This is what the scriptures do too. That these scriptures, the holy writ, the canon, was also written for you to build you up. Romans 4. When we're selfless, we edify and build up our brother and sister. And when we feast on the scriptures, we are also built up and edified. This is what this passage is about. And he's saying in verse 4, everything that was written in the past, we're just going for, for, to simplify it. The whole Old Testament, right, was written for our instruction and our encouragement. And what that scripture is suggesting to us is, first of all, we don't want to zoom by it, that the whole Bible is authoritative. It's God's Word. Everything that was written in the past was God's Word. It wasn't just narrative. It wasn't just ancient Near East hearsay. It was God's Word written through His prophets, written through uh, His mighty men. Everybody say it was God's Word. Everything that was written in the past was, is there for us. And you know why it's there for us? Because it's perfect. Y'all know that scripture, Psalms 19 and 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. Anybody believe that the word of God is trustworthy? Don't y'all love those passages where Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, this th this thing is trustworthy, and it makes wise to simple. I don't care if you graduated summa cum laude, no laude, boba bibo laude. It don't matter. Right? It makes wise. It makes wise to simple. You know, the word of God levels the playing field. I don't care how many masters and doctorates degree you got. If you know this, you know everything you need to know. It makes wise to simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Anybody still believe that the Word of God is it's just right, man? I can't make you believe that it's right, but I know in my heart it's right. It brings joy to my heart. The commandments of the Lord, I love this. They're radiant, and they give light to the eyes. Oh, God, I thank you. God's word is authoritative, it's perfect, and it's also timeless. I love that. Verse 4, it was written to you so you could have encouragement, right? That through the endurance taught in the scripture, you might have hope in everything in the past. So it's these things in the past that Paul is saying, hey man, what I wrote to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and the United Kingdom, all those periods, you're reading it now, but you're reading it and it is just as appropriate now as it was then. It's just as effective as it was now, as it is then. This thing is a timeless truth, which means too, as we read our Bible, right, you know, there are people, you know, I don't know the proper theological term, but the, all they read is the red letters. 
right? What, uh, somebody help me out. All they read is Jesus' words. And then there's some people, all they read is the New Testament. They're like, ah, all that, you know, they, we, can't, we can't prove that that was redacted. They got all the stuff, right, they talk about. But listen, you are cutting off a supply line to hope if you don't read the whole canon. You want to know why you read your Old Testament? Because it is literally trying to give you real people to hold on to and how they waited and how promises came through. You need the whole canon, baby. Tell your neighbor, you say you need the whole thing. Romans 15 is arguing for the power and the profitability and the permanence of Scripture. Romans 15 is arguing for the power, the profitability, and the permanence of Scripture. What's that, 2 Timothy 3, 16? All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable. Who still believe it? It don't matter where you put me in the book. I know it, it is profitable for me. Let me just tell you, God, lest there be any doubt in this room today, your heavenly Father wants you to have hope. One of our children right now is just struggling as they're starting to take tests. They get nervous, get a little anxious, probably can't even finish. We had a couple calls like, hey, you know, baby had a tough time finishing tests. And what me and Gina believe is, you know, probably they get in the middle of it and they're like, I don't either know what I'm doing, don't know how to get through it. I'm so, I'm done. Can't, there's no hope. So if there's no hope, why try? I want you to know your heavenly father knows it is hard. He knows we might not know, but he knows how incredibly complex your life is, all the things you are trying to uh, juggle, all the things you are trying to overcome, all the relationships that need mending, all the, the situations that need mirror. He knows, I'm telling you, he knows. And he doesn't just, he's not just omniscient and I know all these things. I'm trying to argue to you today. He is, he's trying to get more hope to you than you are to get it from him. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's trying to get it to you. God wants his people to have hope. He wants his people to have hope. He wants his people to have hope, yo. You know that there are, in my brief militaristic study, there are probably more wars that are won and lost because of disconnected supply lines then there are strategy and, and fighting and combat and ammunition. One of the ways that people win wars is they somehow are able to cut off the, the, the resources that are coming from the headquarters to people who are on the front lines. If we can make sure there's no food to ration, they can't survive the winter, they can't fight in the cold months. If we could cut off the supply lines and the railroads that are getting them the ammunition, they'll eventually run out of ammunition and they'll have to forfeit this battle. God knows you need hope. You, need, you can't fight. You can't glorify him without hope. 
He knows you need it. And he's trying to get it to you. Now listen, just a couple things. We talked about faith a couple weeks ago. It's this confidence, this assurance, not based on just imaginary ambiguity, but hope is a confidence. It's a, it's a calling to reason that because of this, I believe that this thing that I have not seen yet will come to pass. And if faith is that, via Hebrews 11, the first six verses, then hope is the sentiment that accompanies faith. Right? You have faith that this thing will, will happen. Hope is that, that, that expectation. Like it's a positive posture while you are placing your faith in something. And hope is a result of our faith. And listen, I have in mind all of Scripture. I know faith is granted to us. Nobody conjures up faith. You know, uh, Gil, come up here real quick. Just because you first. What we believe is... Turn around so everybody can see you. Jesus in the heavenly cosmic divine kitchen, he cooks up some faith. Bloop, 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 bloop. You got to be blooped it. Bloop, bloop. Yeah, there you go. Now. Come on, man. You got to be. But it, hey, we drop the faith. We drop the faith into our believers. Right? And now they have a new capacity to believe things that they never thought were possible. Right? Why does it, you can sit down, why does it have to be that way? We're firing you from getting blue. blue. Why does it have to be that way? Well, because if you can conjure up faith to believe, then glory should come to you, right? Oh man, praise God, you have faith. No. Everybody who's a child of God, we know where to give that glory to because we know we didn't have faith on our own. How many of y'all know y'all actually believed things you thought was stupid 20 years ago? Y'all, you know that's got to be all our testimony? That at some point, Christianity is supposed to be irrational. Like, but I, I don't know. I just believe it's true. I believe it. I believe it. So the faith comes, it's dropped in, right? But hope, hope is not given. Based what I see in Scripture, hope is not imparted in the same way faith is. Hope must be nurtured. Hope must be given the proper soil in which to grow. You cannot muscle your way through life. This is not grad school. This is not you on the high school football field. This is not you and whatever other hobbies. You cannot pull up your sleeves and muscle your way through this life. It is too hard. It will chew you up and spit you back out. But the Christian, you have to do this thing because you have hope. I was talking to Michael Johnson, the bishop. Y'all know the bishop Michael Johnson? He said, Tim, you know, a hopeless Christian is an oxymoron. I said, you right, bro. So I'm about to quote you. Let me give you a dead white guy name and then tweet you and then you'll go viral. I'm just playing. Sorry. But a hopeless Christian is an oxymoron because you know why? 
What does 1 Peter 1, 3 tell us? That we've been born again, what? Into a living hope. That is the nature of our Christianity. Nicodemus, how do I become born again? Do I go back into my mama? No, brother. It's by the Spirit of God, you're transformed. How? In 1 Peter unpacks it more. Into a now living hope. The, the way that hope has taken shape throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, there's these kind of two words that kind of are synonymous with hope. The one word, yakal, is to wait in Hebrew. And then the other word is really interesting, it's kavah. And it really just means a cord, right? Um, and what happens is this cord kind of gets stretched, right? And so there's a lot of tension in that cord, and that's what it's kind of symbolizing. It's like, man, you know, when, when, when God calls his people to kavah, or when people say, I will kavah in my God, that what they're trying to describe is maintaining a state of expectation in the middle of the tension. <laughs> I love in the uh, couch conversations, like, what's the difference between optimism and what's the difference between biblical hope? Well, Josh was, he took my notes, is what the problem was. Kept seeing all my stuff. But general optimism is just like, you know, man, if you want to know, I told you, there's one of my favorite singers. He sings a song called It's Gonna Get Better. And it burns me up. Because all they say is it's gonna get better. And my question is, because of what? Why? Based on what? And what, according to uh, Tim them at the Bible Project, you know, when you have general optimism, it is basically, it's this disposition that things will, based on the circumstance, based on how I see things playing out, things will end up working out for good, right? Maybe. But biblical hope is based on a person. It's based on a person, and it's based on that person's past faithfulness and his character. Can I get an amen, lights, and walls, somebody? And as a matter of fact, what uh, the Bible Project was going to say is that many times the biblical writers, they were very honest and candid about their situation. They were like, hey, my wife is barren. There is literally no reason based on the circumstances to have hope. So their hope was not based on any part of the circumstantial evidence because all the circumstantial evidence was against this working out. Hey, but can I get a witness, somebody who don't need circumstantial evidence to have hope? My, my hope ain't based on my bank account. My hope ain't based on my baby's progress report. My hope ain't based on whatever my wife doing. My hope is not based on my neighbors. My hope is not based on the city. My hope is not based on who's in the office. My hope is based on Jesus Christ. That's what biblical hope is. Why y'all smiling? You know, we got wars, rumors of wars, and pandemics, and racial strife. Why y'all still? Oh, that stuff is hard. Real talk. But we got him. Do you know First Thessalonians 4? When Paul 
rebukes the Thessalonians. He's like, hey, be careful that you're not grieving like people who have no hope. We know life is hard. We know when we bury folks, there's going to be immense sadness. Oh, but there's a line. Because we know if we've been born again into this living hope that there is something that always calls and naturally gives us an optimistic outlook in the midst of the tension. Biblical hope is not general optimism. Biblical hope looks back in order to move forward. Because of what my God has done and because I know what his testimony is in scripture, I, because I know, oh, who holds my future. My life is worth living just because he lived. Because he lived, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all my fear is gone. Uh, stop. We were having officer training. Wednesday night. And I said, man, listen, this is the way we want to shepherd our people. We want to listen well. We want to affirm them. We want to sit with them in their real lives and their messiness. And we want to, to be there. We want to be available. And after we listen and after we comfort, we want to apply the truth of God's scripture. We want to remind them of what's true here. But last but not least, we want to believe. We want to believe, we want to believe, we want to believe even when our people are struggling to believe for themselves, the last thing they need to do is come and have you co-sign in an unfaith party. I'm struggling to believe and I come to my pastor and it's like, oh God, he don't believe either. What we going to do? I say, yo, what we got to get ourselves in position to do. We don't know if they'll get married. We don't know if they'll get the healing on this side. We don't know if they'll get the job. But we do know this. And now we close the meeting off. All I want to know is tell me, look at me, I want to feel your eyeballs. Tell me what you know about your God. Tell me what you know is true about your God. And from that position, we minister. I want to know, maybe it's a good moment in your bulletin, what do you know to be true about your God? And those are the things we have got to hold on to. I don't know what's going to happen when I go in the office on Monday, but I know he's a present help. What do you know? I know he'll hear me. I know he will help me. 
I know that he's rightly responding to every one of my prayer requests. I know he's not ignoring me. I know he will give me strength. I do know that. I know I'm never abandoned. I know that. Everything written in the past, the commands, the story of Scripture, all of the promises, they're for you. It's for you. not trying to complicate your life. He wants to help you. Let him help you. Let him speak to you. Let him remind you what he's done for people. And let him tell you how to stay hooked up to the vine he's trying to help you. Don't fight him. Don't fight him. This Advent season, be reminded. Be reminded that everything was written in the past to teach you so that through the endurance that is taught in the scriptures and the encouragement, that they can provide hope to you.